good morning. Uh, welcome to the uh, Free Rohingya Coalition Genocide Podcast. I am Zani. Um, today, I am very pleased and honored um, to be um, um, <clears throat> hosting a conversation uh, with a friend and colleague, uh, uh, Shahida um, Yaqub. Um, she was born and raised in um, um, Uzbek, uh, Tashkent, I believe, and initially educated there. And then she was educated at the uh, University of um, Westminster in London in diplomacy. Um, as well as um, you know uh, the other uh, subjects of her interest, and uh, uh, she is a well-known uh, documentary filmmaker, made um, a number of um, award-winning films, uh, perhaps um, most successfully um, her film, um, which she co-produced, um, known as uh, "The Cries from Syria," um, that has uh, won ten. Um, international awards, uh, the, you know, under the umbrella of um, uh, Courage Under Fire. Uh, and also she has produced um, uh, another one that caught my interest, um, How to Plan a Revolution. It's about the Azerbaijan's, um, you know, uh, the youth uh, attempt to uh, democratize their country and that um, uh, unfortunately failed. But nonetheless, there will be a lot of lessons from uh, from that film for many of us uh, from Burma and other places where the revolutions have not produced uh, what uh, we set out to accomplish. So um, she will be talking about um, her reporting as a war correspondent, uh, documentary filmmaker, and also, you know, she will bring her personal perspective to the work that she does. And, you know, the people do things um, that, not necessarily uh, simply like professionally, but there are also personal, uh, you know, factors and uh, energy that drive the work. And so, so Shahida, welcome. Um, let me just ask you just uh, um, uh, the first question. Um, can you tell us what a war correspondent is, and um, you know, what does it entail? I mean, what are the risks and what are the preparations that you need to uh, carry out before you can? You know, uh, lift the uh, the camera and start filming uh, whatever uh, is most relevant and happening on the ground. Thank you very much. Hello, everyone, and it's a privilege to be on uh, Genocide Podcast. Um, and thank you for a very interesting question. I'm actually asked this question a lot, and I always struggle to answer because uh, being a war war reporter is not as like you're reporting from the streets or anywhere in a nice place. You go there and you have to be prepared for any eventuality. And that's why I've actually recently done a series of um, um, online trainings for journalists who are preparing to be in a war zone. And actually 80% of the success is your um, preparation. And it's not only about physical safety, psychological safety as well. Now you need to know who you're going with. You need to know what are the warning fractions. You need to know the commanders. You need to know people inside the area and from my experience the most loyal um, and trustworthy people i ever worked it always the drivers i never drive myself uh, i always have a local driver who actually in many many instances became a close friend a bodyguard a local knowledge and everything else so you always have to listen to the to what people say on the ground and forget about the ego about that i came here i'm so cool and it's about me 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 it's never never ever about you it's not about how brave you are and that's what 
a lot of people, especially those people, correspondents who are starting their career, forget about it. They, it's the story is not you. The story is a people who are you reporting about because you're not that many people have access to the areas of conflict zones. For example, I was working in Eastern Ukraine uh, during the active phase of um, Russian-Ukrainian war over there. And uh, my job was to work in the separatist whole territories. And this is a very gray area because you're there. This is not recognized entity. So anything happens to you, you're like on your own, basically. Uh, you are surrounded by thugs. Mm -hmm. um, most of them are either drunk or uh, are on drugs. Uh, and uh, the firing, shelling is happening from both sides. You, so you never know where you will end up. Um, and uh, you have to keep your cool uh, because anything happens. For example, you drive and act, shelling is starting, happening like 200 meters from you. you never panic. You just have to turn away. You basically, have to decide whether you're going forward or you're going back. And it's all your intuition, the inner sense, um, and the sense, common sense. Nobody wants you to be extremely brave and die. This is not a story about you dying. I always say my job in a workplace is to first get out of there safe, and second, to tell the story of the people who are there. It's never about the war. How, what weapons they're using, um, about the destruction. No, it's about people who are there who need to be heard. Because if you do not tell their story, nobody will know what's happening. So our job there is to go and talk to the victims of violence and bring it to the world in order to help. Um, there was a the one instance when I was in, again, in Eastern Ukraine and one of the um, towns which was like basically shelled every second minute. The, the artillery shots were basically lying down every minute. And I was absolutely appalled by the fact that the, the people, the public, um, civilians were not evacuated. There was no provision made for the evacuation. And there were lots of children in that town. So me being a journalist, what can I do? I was basically talking to radio. I called my colleagues and said, I need to say this because I'm the only person on the ground. And this is what I see. And I said, it's absolutely horrible that neither Ukrainian army nor the separatist forces didn't give civilians 24 hours to leave the area. Luckily, it was heard by the Ukrainian commanders. And uh, a few hours later, they announced there are going to be evacuation corridors for people to leave, whoever wanted to leave. And that was great. And that's when you feel, yeah, I've done something. At least if some, some lives are saved, that's a great thing. And that's what we're there for. Right. So that, so there, you know, besides your professional interest in filming and telling the story, there, there, there is a, a humanistic um, uh, element to what you do. You want to make sure that uh, you know the 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 film uh, alerts to the world. Uh, you know that there are humans in distress and they need help. Right. Um, and I I I suppose um, maybe similar um, uh, motive um, uh, <coughs> informs your you know, uh, feature documentary exile. And uh, you, you know, you've seen a lot of um, uh, conflict zones been there, 
um, you know, doing a film in um, Iraq uh, about this uh, judge who is trying or presiding over uh, ISIS, uh, captured ISIS fighters. Um, you know, Syria, Azerbaijan, and you, you know, the, um, um, uh, the Ukrainian uh, conflict zone. But when you went to, say, um, uh, Cox's Bazaar in Bangladesh, I mean, obviously, uh, despite the fact that it is one of the largest uh, refugee camps in the world today, um, there are no shelling and, and uh, you know, like bombing and air raids and, you know, like bomb shelters, kids uh, running around, uh, uh, you know, while the planes were like, uh, you know, uh, firing from the air. Does it make it less um, um, a traumatic or tragic as a, you know, human videographer or filmmaker? to see seemingly, you know, a peaceful refugee camp, such as uh, the Cox's Bazaar, mm. compared with what you have seen, you know, that, you know, blood and shelling and, and the sound of gunfire. You can never compare uh, a human loss, a suffering and tragedy. It's all the same. It's either it's happening during the active fighting um, or is happening like in seemingly peaceful environment of the Cox's Bazaar. The trauma of people you talk to is exactly the same. The trauma you suffer as somebody who is seeing it is exactly the same. Uh, if you work in a war zone when there's active war, there are two things. You have to be absolutely alert so you're not get killed. But at the same time, you have, you're talking to a lot of people who go through tremendous suffering. In Cox's Bazaar, there was not that element that I'll be killed, but there is an element of unprecedented human pain, which struck me completely. And uh, I have to tell you that the trauma I've psychological trauma seeing this and talking to people is much worse than you work in a, a you know a war environment because every single woman i spoke to who was describing the horrific rape um which they gone through and i realized that not only women were raped but men also were subjected to rape not only that and the horrible conditions there were people were going through back home and the the exodus I couldn't sleep, you know, I had nightmares because you have to, the big thing about our job is, is empathy. If you don't have empathy, you will never be able to tell the story of these people, but you have to feel their pain. So you could tell this pain and your audiences will feel it like you do. Otherwise there's no point, you know? Uh, and this is what, why I, I, I try to do more documentaries because it gives you space uh, to show it to show how horrible it is and, and ask people for sympathy and, and call for action. You know, I have to tell you, Zarni, because I, I never, South Asia was never my area. I never worked there. I normally work in the Middle East in the former Soviet Union. The closest was Afghanistan uh, I've been to. And, but uh, I took the Rohingya case because I thought this has been going on for so long and we, we keep hearing about it in the news, about certain number of Rohingyas killed, 
certain number of, kilo, of Rohingyas drowned in the sea. But there was no comprehended, like one document in terms of films, which will tell the story from the beginning to the end, because Burma is so complicated. that people don't know Burma, you know, people think that's just Burma. People, not general public doesn't know there's so many ethnic groups living there. And when I started this film, a lot of colleagues were telling me, Shahida, it's a lost cause. Um, nobody's, nobody makes the first independent film with people nobody cares about. I'm like, well, I do, <laughs> you know. So, and it paid off. And um, I'm very happy that I tried to talk to both sides and to show how horrible and racist uh, the monks in Burma are. It's not something mm. you come up with. It's there. And they say it right to your face. Right, right. I, th I think like, you know, uh, there's a film called, I think like maybe Reverend Blue or W. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, by a French um, uh, filmmaker um, uh, about Wiratu, the, the man who was put on, whose uh, picture was put on the, um, the, on the front uh, cover of Time magazine. And essentially, uh, evil has been immortalized and glorified by Time magazine that way yeah and uh, the same way time um glorified or like you know uh, the, uh, made acceptable uh you know by putting um, adolf hitler's um picture as the um um men of the year the same way they did uh, uh with uh, donald trump and, and many others right and so but that, you know the, but the, what i want to ask you is um you said you know the, uh, you talked to Two sides uh, here. The the you know let, let's just uh, use a, a more cr a crude um, street language. The evil doers, you know, like monks who uh, spread um, this uh, the false images of um, uh, you know Muslims as terrorists and uh, rapists and invaders, uh, uh, you know, unwanted um, uh, illegal immigrants, um, as well as the um, you know, the local public that clamor for essentially a, a genocidal cleansing or a genocidal approach of um, the, the Rohingyas from our country. But uh, I think what I found um, most um, unique and uh, very special about your film is uh, not that you capture the voices of monks and, and uh, local public uh, and the racist voices or the, uh, the victims' voices, but, you know, I think like yours, Exile, that feature documentary, is the only um, documentary where, um, you know, the interview with the only surviving architect of the Burmese genocide, ex-general Kenyon, you know, who was, uh, who had been involved in this genocide since he was a, a deputy field commander in the 1970s, the first wave of um, genocidal purge in 1978. Uh, uh, until his ouster um, from the position of the head of the Burmese military intelligence in this October 2004. And you had to, um, you know, basically that's like, you know, interviewing Himmler, basically. I mean, like, okay, Himmler took his own hand and no one had the uh, opportunity to sit down and, you know, hear his twisted logic. But you had that opportunity. Tell us about that interview. Um, how you got the interview and what you thought of him as uh, the person. 
Um, it was very important for me to get him. I also attempted to get some other people who are very involved in um, persecution of Rohingyas as of 2012, but I had really very limited time to be in Burma. My visa was only for 10 days. So I had to catch and, uh, anyone. So but we, he didn't want to talk in the beginning. Hey, hang on, hang on. But uh, you, you went there, not as a tourist, you went there. You, you had to apply for visa at the Burmese Embassy in London. Right? Yeah, I had then, I had to have a journalist. You, you declare yourself as a journalist, didn't you? Not as an uh, because you'll be bringing camera equipment and all that, right? Yeah, uh, my my modus operandi in the countries like that, I have to follow the rules. I you know I know when to go on tourist visa and I know when I have to go on journalist visa. It took me one and a half months to get a visa. I I almost was going to the embassy every week, twice a week, as if I'm working there. Uh, they were they did it anything to prevent me from getting a visa but they did but the visa was only for 10 days and i also had to uh, write down that i'm not going to attempt to visit the rakhine state which was fine because i mm -hmm. sent someone else there mm -hmm. um but yeah so i had to operate within this 10 days like cinderella you know and uh one of so the they, first they give you as uh, they give you the visa um uh, you know um, because you you had uh, um um you know done you had worked for the BBC and generally like, uh, you know, the, if you're no longer with the, uh, uh, if you had worked for uh, Western agencies and they, they're quite um, um, suspicious and uh, extremely careful. How did you I get knew that and that is why there was no way they would have given me a visa if I am British press and I'm a freelance. So I spoke to the um, uh, very nice, not friend of mine, acquaintance of mine, who is the chairman of the TV uh, channel in Ukraine uh, and uh, I asked him to give me um, papers that I'm working for um, that channel and that's why I need to go because Burma is a land of so many possibilities and the tourism and stuff like that and the culture so he gave me I was given this papers from Ukrainian channel 24 and they also made me accreditation card and the Burmese uh, consuls like well, Ukraine Britain, I'm like, listen, I am not, not many people in Ukraine have international experience, like, you know, and I work for them as a freelance. So they believe me. Um, I guess I'm a, quite a good liar. Uh, and so they, took, they took your bait. Yeah, 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 they did. And then the way, and then what happened that I, I arrived and the second day we tried to get uh, in touch with General Kinyu. We went to his house and the, um, the guard or the, the, you know, the gardener, we said, oh, the sir is going to be leaving the house or in a car. So, you know, I'll tell him that you want to talk. And because I don't speak Burmese, um, I was with, with me was Aum, my co-producer. So the, the car stops, the, the window goes down, general is there and uh, Aung is talking to him something and I see the windows goes up. And I'm like, no, I have to storm this. I stormed in, in, in English. And I said, listen, you're the living history of Burma. This is very important. You know, I mean, you have to talk because if you don't talk, then we will never know your side of the story. Right. And he was like, he bought, he looked at me and he said to Aung, okay, come in three days. So we came, he was waiting. Uh, he has this little souvenir shop in in his compound which he used to run not anymore so we did interview there and he, he looked at me and i said look he said look you know bbc came 
Al Jazeera came, they wanted to interview me. I didn't talk to them. You, I liked. And he sat down and for three and a half hours, he Because you are a Ukrainian journalist. I think somebody told me in Burma that I look like one of the Burmese actresses. Oh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, general, I, the general likes the Burmese actresses. And so yeah. you fit oh, Yeah, I hit the box. Because somebody told me and sent me the picture of this Burmese actress who I allegedly look like. Not really, but there's some similar, I guess, Asian face, basically. Yeah. 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 So he, for three and a half hours, was talking about his childhood and Japanese occupation of Burma and British war. And it was extremely interesting. And he was this calm person. If I didn't know his background, I would thought, this is an elderly gentleman who is just telling the story. But it's hard to interview people like that because uh, you, you cannot go and talk to people like that hating them because they feel it. Your yeah. job there is to get as much as possible, make them relaxed so they feel comfortable. And then you ask them questions, not exactly, why did you kill Rohingya? You know, right, right. But you kind of ask them, so what do you think about Muslims and, you know, this and that. And then gradually, people open up. He's right. not the first uh, war criminal I spoke to. <laughs> so it kind well, of. Well, you know, he, he was. Um one of the architects of the uh, not just simply a trigger puller um in 1978 he was already a major uh, deputy commander in charge of a light infantry division uh, the, that was headquartered in in northern rakhine or arakan state that today is a crime scene basically declare a protective area uh, by the International Court of Justice, and so tell tell us about um, you know the the rationales or the justifications that he gave, and things that he did, you know, like you know setting up a, what what in my view was essentially the Burmese equivalent of um, SS, yeah, uh, they call it um, <coughs> Nasaka, you know, the uh, uh, the 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 border security. Uh, the division, uh, which reported directly to him. And that went on until ab about 2013. I mean, this Nasaka uh, that was uh, kept in place for about 12 years. And then it was really the Burmese equivalent of SS, but their military, they were directly under his command uh, as the, because he was the founder of this un uh, the division. And the, um, and so I think, now, with the, um, uh, the the International Court of Justice proceeding on the uh, Gambia versus Myanmar case, I think Kenyon's testimony uh, or like your interview, raw footage, if uh, if you know, not, if not only, a few, I mean, you used only a, f uh, a few minutes of his interview, but I assume like you know, when you talk to him for three or four hours, there will be massive raw footage from which you know, can be extracted certain, um, essentially evidence from the, the senior most, uh, you know, commander that have been involved in the genocide. Can, can you give us a sense of, or like, you know, tell us what he said, uh, you know, in terms of what his deeds, justifications, and, and also him looking back. At... I asked him about Nasaka. 
and he was very proud of it. You could Whoa. see that, yeah, he was like, he was very proud of this unit. He smiled. He Whoa. said, I established it because we had to control the border with Bangladesh. We couldn't, you know, accept these guests anymore. So from his point of view, he was defending Burma and he was very proud of what he's done. Well, it he sounds was, like he being was genuinely, genuinely proud, you know, when I, and I said to him, look, there are lots of reports of different organizations that Nasaka was involved in uh, money extortion of torture and et cetera, et cetera. He said, no, no, no. He totally denied it. Right. Even though it was absolutely clear to me that he knew what was happening. Right. Because on one hand, he's saying, we have to control the population because if we don't control the population, there are going to be so many Muslims in this country, there are going to be no Burmese. Right, right. So, so the, the population was to be controlled because of their religious identity. And then, you know, they, they did control them uh, in so many ways. And actually, they, you know, the, the best control is that to make sure they disappear. <laughs> so you don't have to control them anymore, right? That the ultimate. Um, so, Chuck, you know can the, you elaborate more? Uh, basically, when uh, the, 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 the complicated system of control of population, which they, they created, and he actually was instrumental in that, because after he created this Nasaka, all these things started happening. You know, before they were like killed. And now there was a state system in place. It was it, to create an open prison for destruction and elimination of people. Right. Might as well just kill them. You know, when I saw that, and I thought the only thing which distinguishes Burmese military from the Nazis is that the country is so poor, they can't afford gas chambers. Right. Otherwise, they would have been probably very happy to put the gas chambers and gas older Muslims, not only the Rohingya, but with General Kinyu, you know, he had this, I think, kind of endemic hatred to Muslims because he was telling me about the incident when he was a young commander uh, in like 60s or whatever, and he was visiting and he had a Muslim um, uh, assistant or whatever, not, a, uh, less, not senior, but junior commander with him, and he was Muslim, and they were visiting Rakhine State Arakan at that time. And this guy, the Muslim officer, invited him to his house. And General Kinyu was saying, and there were so many people, you know, they married two, three, four times. There were 25 people in the house. They were all dirty and this and that. And so they reproduce. Right. So it, it goes back. Right. They reproduce uh, like rabbits. Uh, they're dirty. They have several wives. And I understand that from where he was coming from, obviously didn't have a lot of interaction with Muslim be Muslims before. He started feeling we have to protect ourselves because right. we don't reproduce that much. Right. Even though logic doesn't say that how many Muslims are in Burma, come on, 1%, 2% population? Yeah, no, no, they are definitely one of the uh, smallest minorities and in no ways, uh, the, you know, have they posed either demographic or military or, uh, or economic threats. You know, the economy is in the, in the hands of Sino-Burmese or, uh, or the, um, you know, the, the Chinese capitalists from across the border. Uh, militarily, I mean, well, I mean, come on, like, there's no no such thing as a mu Muslim Liberation Army, but they have an Arakan Army. You know what I mean? That's for the openly fighting for sovereignty and um, 
uh, independence. But you know, Kinyon, um, on, on, on this subject, Kinyon also um, uh, author and edit uh, a, a compilation of essays, including his speeches and, and uh, his own writings, um, where he essentially um, argued and, and falsely that this area, the coastal region of Rakhine or Arakan in the ancient times, uh, was in quotes purely Buddhist. So, like in, in the in the preface of the book, uh, you know, this um, you know for a former head of intelligence, Kenyon, wrote in Burmese that we have to purify the uh, the, the region and restore the state to its original um, state, basically Muslim free. Yeah. So, um, the, what else did he um, did he tell you tell you about? You know uh, what Nasaka was doing. Of course, he knew what Nasaka was doing because he was the guy who issued commands, and and the reports from the field will come back to him naturally as a bureaucracy. Not only you know, uh, also the amount of money they extorted from people. That was not just like it. It didn't end up only in the pockets of local commanders. It all I'm from the former Soviet Union. It all goes mm -hmm. vertical. It doesn't stay horizontal. It went mm -hmm. to him. If you see the villa he's living in, oh my God, you know, it's incredible. So obviously he knew it was a system which um, satisfied everyone. Right. Uh, first of all, he created a system where he could feed his soldiers and gave them free reign to do whatever they want, also make some money on the side. And secondly, he was trying to get rid of Muslims. Right. You know, wow, what an amazing scheme. And he was very upset when uh, Nasaka was dis dismantled. And, you know, he, he genuinely was very sorry about it. Mm -hmm. He said, look, you know, I, I created that. They got rid of it. And now look what's happening. Right. Said no controls anymore. Right, right. Yeah, but you know the the Burmese. He was very sorry that he didn't finish the job. Right, right, right. Well, that's why I I I, I suppose uh, May Online, the uh, commander in chief of the Burmese Armed Forces, in October two thousand and seventeen, you know, a month of, in the middle of all the uh, genocidal violence uh, that are being um, perpetrated in Rakhine State against the Rohingyas by the army. And then also like the you know the air force and navy. This was an interagency coordinated assault. It wasn't just uh, infantry units like you know roaming around and doing their own thing. No, no, no. There was uh, you know assault from the air. Uh, the naval um, navy was involved. You know because Rakhine State um, has uh, so many um, river lets and, and streams that you know big enough for the um, smaller naval vessels to uh, to, uh, to to steam um, to steam, but um, May Online said um, openly to, to his um, the troops what the Burmese armed forces, known as Tamador, uh, were doing was uh, basically completing the unfinished business, you know. And so, the, the, you know, the, the, the unfinished business was the, uh, the presence of Muslims that had not been uh, eradicated uh, since the end of the Second World War. And Kenyon, according to um, your face-to-face -face conversation with him, um, felt a sense of, you know, unfinishedness. Yeah. And then, can you tell us more about, um, you know, uh, the, uh, the acts that uh, the that Kenyon was unhappy about? I mean, things that that made him unhappy about. 
Um, I asked him about the current state of affairs. Like, you know, I said, look, the army, your army, obviously, you know, is uh, accused in not only genocidal acts, but also rape. He totally denied. He said, no, our army can never do these things. And I understand his professional military. He will always defend the army. He wasn't happy with the way things work in, in Myanmar now uh, in terms of, of economy. And it looked like he wanted always to have a much bigger role than he had. Uh, he was very um, nice, like when he was talking about the times when he was a president. Right. It's so, I forgot what exactly the title is. But no, he, he was, he was prime, made prime, prime minister. Prime, yeah. He was very proud of that time. You know, he was number, number three in the, the food chain. Yeah. So, but he was like, it felt like he wanted to be more than that. Yes. He is extremely ambitious man. Uh, and actually, when he was talking about the beginning of his military career, in uh, all the steps he's done, you clearly could see a, a not very educated person because he always regretted not going to the university. No, no, he did. And then he dropped out because he kept failing the exams, according to <laughs> so one of his classmates I knew. Right. But he wanted to achieve, he was so ambitious mm. uh, to navigate. And obviously him being like number three or prime minister made a huge deal. And that's why he wanted to be more recognized he felt really bad that he, according to him, he was actually backstabbed and the corruption investigation started and stuff like that. Um, he felt very disappointed with his colleagues. Right. And you could see that sense of like resentment to it. Right. Um, and I think that's the reason he wanted to talk a lot because he wanted to tell some, to talk to someone. And I think he, he did regret a lot of things. Right. He didn't regret killing Muslims. No, that one was did, not. Did he did did he ever um, refer to the Rohingyas by their own name? Um, no, no, no. They were either Muslims or Bengalis. Right. Never, never. He said the word Rohingya. Yeah, but you know the word Rohingya was officially um, recognized. You know, in uh, <clears throat> in the uh, Burmese Encyclopedia. Uh, in the Ministry of Defense uh, publications and everything, and so so well, the, um, the, this is a it's kind of an Israeli-Palestinian situation where the state of Israel never recognized the uh, identity of Palestinian, and they were always Arabs. Yeah, uh, the, 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 and then so so the, you you've also worked on the Palestinian issues, um, and and. Um, I know it's difficult to um, make a comparison in terms of the hierarchy, creating this false hierarchy of pains and suffering, as you said earlier. Um, but how dire the, the situation for the Rohingya, you know, uh, compared with, say, Palestinians who have a long, you know, decades long tradition of um, resisting their um, you know, essentially uh, genocidal um, uh, persecution by the Israeli um, uh, army. The difference between the Rohingyas uh, and Palestinians that the Rohingyas are not home. They most most majority of them are in Bangladesh now in the mm -hmm. camp. They completely lost their land. Uh, as far as Palestinians are concerned, they didn't lose their land completely yet. 
Uh, unfortunately, the government of Netanyahu was grabbing the land uh, year by year and making it smaller and smaller, increasing the number of settlements, uh, which are totally illegal under international law. And also they create a lot of resentment in Israel itself. You know, Israel is a very complicated country. It's not like there is Israel. There are also groups in Israel. Um, there are people who are totally opposed settlements and increase of settlements. But unfortunately, the radical conservative people who vote for Netanyahu and for Likud party, they make the votes and that's what they want, the land grab. Um, the, uh, you see, I've been, it took, I've been in Gaza many times. Uh, and uh, um, the first time I came was in 1999. Um, and when I saw these camps, which did look to me like concentration camps, it was, it was a, at a shock. And people still live in the camps, in their own land. And there's no will, political will, both from both sides, to resolve this issue. Um, unfortunately, me looking at this conflict so many years, I see that it, the, the relationship between the two sides deteriorated so badly that virtually it looks like there's no point of repair, of, no breaking point to repair them. The hatred, the propaganda on both sides, um, you know, the, the speeches of violence increased so that it, it's impossible to hear each other anymore. Right. Uh, in 1999, when I uh, visited Hebron, or Khalil, which is a divided city between, you know, the, there's a Jewish settlement in between Khalil is under Palestinian control. Uh, there was no separation line. There was just... Once one side of the street belonged to Palestinian Authority, another one to Israel, but there was no separation line. People were just interacting. Three years ago, when I came to Hebron, uh, I was shocked. There, there were walls everywhere, the barbed wire, separation, huge Israeli block blast. Uh, I wanted to cry. It's just, you can't live like that. There's, it's not life, neither for the settlers, neither for Palestinians. Who need that? Who needs that? Yeah, the I mean the only thing that I would uh, point out though is that they you know of course you know there there is there is a hatred and there is uh, there will be reactive hatred you know what I mean uh, but this this is in like uh, you know two two sides on an equal moral plane one side uh, perpetrating you know so, uh, basically the worst crimes in international law. Uh, against um, you know the oppressed and and, and the less powerful uh, Palestinians and of course like Palestinians are going to take back it's simple yeah. you know I me mean? so so uh, I I I would still hold the perpetrators to uh, responsible for the you know mushrooming of hatred um, you know from the Palestinian side yeah and, absolutely uh, and and so I I just want to make it clear that we. We, when you or I say that there are two sides, that there's a, you know, so much hatred and rage, I want to make clear, clear that, you know, the perpetrator's hatred and rage, it is categorically, morally different from the reactive hatred and rage that, uh, uh, the, you know, the oppressed feel. They make them suffocate. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's impossible to live there. It's, it's, it's impossible. It's impossible to travel from West Bank to Gaza. You cannot enter Gaza. 
you know, the way the Palestinians used to enter is like they treat them as cattle, you know. It's absolutely horrible, 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 horrible. And if uh, anyone could, you know, there is no justification to that. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, I think like, you know, in, in, in um, Angela Davis, uh, the, uh, the iconic civil rights, um, you know, activist and, and a revolutionary and intellectual um, um, in the United States based in uh, Oakland, California, she, you know, she, she has been extremely active um, and actively supportive of Palestinian cause. Um, you know, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the Black Civil Rights Movement has always supported other, uh, you know, uh, the liberation struggles, you know, from the ANC in South Africa to Palestinians. You know, I mean, like Martin Luther King's um, uh, the final speech before he got shot, um, uh, the touch on the issue of Palestinians. Yeah? And, and Angela Davis um, uh, noted that this is, a, uh, this is a tragic and outrageous phenomenon. Uh, where in, um, you know, formerly persecuted people or formerly persecuted individual morph into the uh, perpetrators and criminals themselves. You know, you talk about like you know, the state of Israel, like, you know, the security forces and whatnot, treating Palestinians as if they were just cattles, you know, subhumans. Well, that's how the, uh, the Nazi victims were treated by SS and others. I mean, they were you know, the Jews were put in cattle cars, for God's sake, yeah? yeah. And, and, and so this is, this is a similar situation we have in, in Burma as well. You know, uh, the, we, Burma is a, a former British colony, and, it, you know, the colonialism isn't simply about like, extracting resources and stealing land and controlling people. It's also about, like, you know, um, you know racism, apartheid, racial persecution and discrimination. And uh, we, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm Burmese I'm here. I'm speaking as a Burmese. You know, the, my, I never lived under the colonial rule, but I heard uh, first-hand stories from within the extended family going back to uh, two or three generations. And as a young boy, my blood boiled uh, when I hear uh, stories from my great-grandmothers or fathers or whoever on the streets when the, the British colonial troops were shooting and killing protesters, locals on the streets of Mandalay. My blood boiled, yeah? and then so, um, why, why would um, the formerly persecuted people turn to perpetrators themselves? You know, I mean, it, it, it is just utterly like tragic and uh, criminal. And but um, now I want to shift a gear here. Um, I want I want you to talk about um, your documentary about how to plan a revolution in Azerbaijan. Uh, because uh, we, we've touched uh, so much on the sufferings and oppression. I want to hear, uh, you know, your attempt to document um, uh, resistance, you know, f fail or successful. That's a different story. Yeah, in, uh, in 2004, there was um, a Rose Revolution in Georgia. His name was George is a country. Yeah. When uh, the communist, former communist guy, uh, was toppled down and the new democratic forces came young people you know with the new agenda and georgia became a different country in the neighboring azerbaijan they had dictatorship uh and dictator's son was in charge ilham alif he's still in charge and there and azeri youth was so inspired by the rose revolution in georgia they were so inspired by the orange revolution in ukraine that they thought they can do the same. They just 
have to go and fight for the parliamentary elections. And um, they didn't have any money, any support, you know, from any donors or whatever. They were making the leaflets, doing some graffiti at night, risking their lives, organizing protests, really hoping that the West will support this, especially the United States. Right, uh, because this is uh, they're they're a former um, a satellite state within the Soviet Union. Yes, exactly. Like Georgia was. Like Georgia, yes. But yeah, we all fell down in 1991. And it never happened. The protests were violently crashed. The uh, elections were fabricated and stolen. The votes were stolen. And um, there was so a... They were, they were expecting or hoping that the uh, Western uh, democratic and uh, liberal demo democracies will come to their... Uh, you know, they provide solidarity and material support, right? Not the material support. They didn't need material support. They needed moral support and actually the elections were rigged. Right. A lot of, there are a lot of opposition candidates who genuinely, genuinely won in these districts. I've been there for four months. I saw the election campaign and for the people who were voting mm. for the right candidates, for the opposition candidates. Never happened. It never happened. And that, and because international community just after the election mm -hmm. said, well, there were some, so many um, uh, no, violations, but nothing happened after that. Right. It's like telling my boys, oh, you behaved really badly and then go on on my own business. That what happened. So the authoritarian regime won and the youth was crashed, extremely disappointed. Um, opposition was crashed later on, you know, brutally. Uh, the last meeting was uh, suppressed by, they brought the dogs, uh, tear gas, water cannons, beat up a lot of people, the security forces. And that was it. And ever since after that, Azerbaijan lost a, a will, lost will to, uh, opportunity to kind of mobilize the youth you know, because you need some inspiration. Uh, you know, when Arab Spring happened in 2011, people in Azerbaijan got really inspired as well. It's like, okay, you know, we're gonna make it again. Right. And again, nothing happened. And again, a lot of youth activists ended up in prison. Uh, journalists ended up in prison and et cetera, et cetera. So um, then you it reached the point, what's next? And uh, that's it. It was a very sad story. Right. You know. So, so you, you, um, your documentary was um, telling the story of how they organized um, the resistance and how that got crushed. And was that uh, uh, your narrative, the threat uh, throughout the, the documentary? No, you never. We, we filmed it hoping that they're going to succeed, actually. Right. <laughs> You know, the whole idea was like, okay, we're going to document the revolution making from the beginning to the end, you know, right. and that's why I spent almost half a year in Azerbaijan, living right. there every day with this three activists we filmed, you know, going with them everywhere, participating in every protest and action. And we hope that it's going to work. And it never right. happened. And, and right. the last, you know, the last thing, so there should be a cut point. They, they lost elections. Right. There's no single opposition candidate in the parliament. They lost. Mm. They crashed. They're being detained. So what's the end point? So we decided the end point is going to be last big rally. 
which opposition, um, you know, gathered out in the outskirts of the city and got terribly crashed. Yeah, well, the Burmese would, would certainly be able to relate to that story because, you know, after 30 years of, or 30 plus years of uh, the Burmese um, uprisings uh, in 1988, um, uh, we have a completely failed, uh, you know, democratic opposition when the leader herself, Aung San Suu Kyi, uh, became a, a, a tool um, of defense against genocide um, allegations um, at the International Court of uh, uh, just, uh, Justice. Um, now, can you talk about your um, cries from Syria? That so far has been your most uh, celebrated um, you know, um, um, work. Um, yeah, Cries from Syria was directed by Eugenia Finiaski, who is a very famous um, di Hollywood director. And his previous film called um, Winter on Fire was about actually the revolution in Ukraine, the latest one. See, Ukrainian himself? Uh, no, he's from uh, the United States, but he's Russian from the United States. Mm. Uh, yeah, so that revolution, actually Ukrainians were the only people who successfully managed to, to carry on three revolutions, you know. Mm. <laughs> it doesn't mean that they achieved, they achieved that if they toppled down the bad guy, but whether they managed to make the country, reforms in the country, that's a different story because state institutions are not that, they're not evolved yet. You know, you topple down the bad guy, but you don't have state institutions to carry on. You end up with square one. That what happens. Uh, Cries from Syria was um, an interesting film because in the beginning it was supposed to be a film about refugees, the, the flood of refugees from uh, Turkey and Syria to Europe. And then it was decided that we have to tell the story, mm. the full story of the, the first revolution in Syria and then civil war and then, um, and then foreign fighters and total destruction. Uh, so that's why the research was basically uh, focused on finding the people who wanted to topple down the regime of Bashar al-Assad. And uh, we, we managed to do that. It's like 19... 89 in in Burma when the students were covertly organizing things you know yeah, that's what right. exactly happened in Syria in March 2011 right. were, because this the country like Burma was tightly controlled by the security service everywhere were security service people so students were very carefully organizing these little groups and chains trying to avoid any like provocateurs or whatever agents and uh, the graffiti appeared in different places in Syria calling for the revolution. Right. And that's how people started going outside and protest. Uh, and exactly like with Burma in 1989, the student protests. 88, 88. Oh, sorry, 88. Yeah, student protests were crashed. People ended up in jail, in the worst jails possible, asset jails, which we now know thanks to Caesar Act, which the United States Congress adopted, and all these horrible photos of people who are in asset prisons, and now relatives are looking through the photos, trying to identify their lost ones. So a lot of youth ended up there. And that was, the, the it was horrific story. It's happening till, till now. Um, but uh, that's how they crashed the youth. 
in the pro and young people, the students, and I, every student I spoke to who was participating in the revolution, they were so inspired by the Arab Spring. They also thought we can do it. It happened in Tunisia. It happened in Egypt. We can topple down our guy. So you you were in Damascus and Aleppo and those places? No, I didn't. I didn't go to Damascus because to get to Damascus you need Syrian accreditation. And they're very unhappy to give it to foreign journalists. We were mm. operating in um, opposition-controlled areas. That includes um, uh, Aleppo? Yes, close to Syrian border. Uh, so across the Turkish border. Right. Uh, because that border, I mean, we could operate there going back and forth, which was okay. There were a lot of people who, were witnessed, who witnessed the key events, uh, ha you know, left Syria, managed to get out of there and live in Turkey or Europe. Mm. Uh, I found the, the, the Syrian general who was in charge of the chemical weapons and he, he defected in 2013 because he said, I cannot kill my people, you know, but he was developing the chemical program. He knew exactly where the storage of chemical weapons are. And he was the most, he is still, thanks to God, he's still alive, the most authoritative source to confirm that the present asset used uh, chemical weapons against people. Right. But I thought that the, the United States said that the chemical weapon um, usage was the red, the red line that, As you know, Assad regime must not cross. And uh, what, I mean, you know, the, 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 um, looking at a bigger picture, are there only two sides in um, Syria or, or no, what, who are the major players that are either benefiting or fueling uh, benefiting from or fueling the um, uh, the civil war there. I mean, you've got Turkey, you've got Israel, United States. You know, Assad you have a regime, lot of interest. I call it uh, it's it's a zoo at the moment. Yeah. There's no it's country like yeah. It's a, a zoo. Well, why do you say that? Because uh, not only you have interested countries like Iran. Turkey and Russia, those are three main important ones. Then you have sub-actors sub called Qatar, Saudi Arabia, mm. who actually were funding the Islamist resistance or whatever mm. you call them, you know, including the Islamic State. Uh, even in Islamist front, you have a jungle because you have Islamic State and you have Jafhat al-Nusra, which is another one, which is Al-Qaeda's, uh, you know, baby basically uh and some other little subgroups and divisions then you have hezbollah right. operating there which is lebanese right. then you have uh the shiite militia from afghanistan which iran is using so you have these guys now you have then you have russian army yeah proxies then you have russian army and then you have russian unofficial contractors well, Russia, Russia has a naval base in uh, in Syria as well, right? Yes, that's why they wanted Syria. Syria was a long ally of the Soviet Union, right. and um, the relationship uh, are very deep and long. And a lot of Syrians were learning. A lot of Syrian military officers uh, were educated in Moscow in Soviet Union, and I've I've seen people who still could speak Russian. And the, the one guy, he was a, an um, aviation, he was a pilot, he was an old general as well, you know, pilot. And I said to him, how does it feel that you were a pilot, you were studying with the people who exactly now give orders to bomb your people? Right, you mean the, uh, 
yeah. the, the, the Russian Air Force. And the, Russian the, Air Force, Russia, yeah. yeah. He said, I know them. I right. studied with them. And now I'm a refugee and they're bombing my country. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's how it is. There's just bitter feelings, a lot of bitter feelings. Yeah. Uh, and yes, um, you know, that's why Bashar al-Assad is there. So Syria is a mess. I say there is no country like Syria anymore. It's mm -hmm. just a name. Because Bashar al-Assad controls, nobody knows how much percent of the territory. You know, no. the territory close to Turkish border, Turks are controlling. And now th there's Turkish army officers there. And it feels like Turkey. We're back to Ottoman Empire type thing, right. you know. But at least somebody should give civilians protection. I really do not care who controls what. No. I just want these people to be safe, to the military campaign to stop, and possibly return of the refugees to, okay, they don't have any houses anymore, but at least they're going to be home. You know, they're not going to be looked up on like as some guests, some unwanted people who are the nuisance. Right. There are over a million of Syrian refugees in Turkey. They need and to... And they're along, along the border where, um, you know, the, there is a, a barricade or like, a, a, you know, checkpoints from which the Syrian refugees cannot come into turkey right they're, they're made of you know they're they're made of, basically they created the turkey's created a no man's land where um you know refugees uh, i suppose about three million or so are stuck yeah uh, around the border with turkey uh you have um idp camps international right. that's what they're called and there's like relative safety the problem with these camps that no one can have access to that except turkish humanitarian organizations even the un doesn't have access to those camps uh we don't know what's going to happen to these people and especially in winter the conditions were so horrible that a lot of kids died because of uh, they, were, they got frozen and right. it was impossible to get aid there this yeah, because it's de happen. desert conditions, right? Yeah, it, it, it should never, never happen. You know, we cannot, people look at complacency and like, okay, you know, they're refugees, IDPs. In the same time, war carries on. Right. And uh, it shouldn't be the case. You know, at certain stage, it should be stopped. What, what, what are the um, um, roles of the um, Western powers like you uk france usa in, in this um you know uh, the syrian um essentially what the, the way you describe it it's it's a country that's being balkanized without being recognized as such yeah uh the west doesn't really play a, lot, a big role i think the west failed syria uh, because in the beginning there was support of the revolution and, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then when Assad, it was revealed that Assad is using chemical weapons, there was like, oh, we're going to put sanctions. Nothing has been done. There was no serious action by any Western country, uh, including the United States, France, and Britain, to do anything about this person. Brits went even far. No one stripped his wife of British nationality. She's a British citizen. Right. They never strip her of nationality, but the strip of nationality Shamima Begum, the Bretton Green girl, and some other British females who ended up in ISIS. That's right. not fair. Right. I was on the border with uh, Syria and Turkish border with Syria, and uh, so this is Karkamish, and the other side was controlled by the Islamic State, virtually 300 meters. Right. 
And what they were, and I spoke to the local villagers. I was like, what the hell is happening? They said they're shelling, they're bombing every day, that side. Mm -hmm. Bombing every day. So why are you bombing every day? You will bomb them. Okay, so people will die. And what do you achieve exactly? What happened to Raqqa? That's what they could do. The Italian uh, airplanes, French, Americans, they bomb, 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 bomb. Look what happened in Mosul. Right. Bomb, bomb, bomb. Nobody wants to do a land operation. People just want to bomb. It's easy, correct? That's what it's all about. And now, even worse, when we allegedly defeated the Islamic State in Raqqa and Mosul, you have, uh, again, refugee camps full of people, like women and children, uh, on the Syrian-Iraqi border in Al-Hol camp, about 70,000 females and kids. A lot of them, at least half of them, are foreign. Right. French don't want to take their women and children. They strip right. them of nationality. Right. Brits did exactly the same. Australians, right. yes. Take the kids out of there. If these people committed crime, female, females, right. bring them home, give them opportunity to fear trial. But don't pretend that these people don't exist right. and dump them over there. Right. This is wrong. This is against all humanitarian principles. It's the principles of democracy and anything the West stands for, human rights. Yeah. Um, the, uh, I, I want to like, um, ask you final questions. Um, because we are approaching one hour mark um earlier you mentioned that when you talked to rohingya women who had suffered un unimaginable uh you know uh, tragedies or assault uh, you know sexual violence and sadistic uh, uh treat uh, mistreatment at the hands of the burmese soldiers and, and other local vigilantes you, you said it doesn't matter you know um pain is pain you don't you know, create this false hierarchy. Uh, but we have our international legal system and concepts and law that create these, you know, hierarchies. Yes. And 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 uh, you, uh, I've been to the refugee camps. I've been to uh, you know uh, some parts of war, uh, active war zones in Burma in um, in the Karen areas. And. And the victims would not ask, um, you know, what kind of crime are you going to commit against me? You know, are you going to rape me genocidally? Or is your rape going to be an act of crime against humanity? Or is it is it part of your war crime that you're raping me now, right? So like, the, you know, I, I mean, as, as, as an um, activist and a sociologist, uh, I find this, this extremely absurd that we create these like legal concepts where human pains and sufferings are put in this, you know, hierarchy, you know, and that's what we're seeing at the International Court of Justice, you know, like William Shabazz from the Burmese side and Suchi arguing that maybe like war crimes are committed, but that's none of your business. So therefore you must dismiss, yeah. Um, and then I also find it extremely shocking, uh, a woman, a mother of two uh, boys and a widow uh, showing absolutely no signs of compassion for, you know, for the Rohingya woman. Even if she doesn't want to recognize the identity, she should show compassion, you know, from one woman to the another. Yeah. And, and then, then like this like false legal argument 
there are war crimes and crimes against humanity um, under which rape can be uh, uh, committed ought to be dismissed by the International Court of Justice because that's something that another court, the International Criminal Court across the street or I mean in the vicinity yeah. must take care of. You see what I mean? Do, 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 do you have any thoughts on that? You've been doing it for like, you know, 20, 30 years. I'm um, absolutely a, appalled by that. Right. I'm appalled because the victims who suffer, they cannot categorize, you know, I'm suffering because I've been raped, because I lost my loved ones, or because I lost, I lost the house. Unfortunately, you can't categorize. It's a pain and it's a loss. It, every single crime should be treated equally without any categorization. I'm really sorry. How many people do you need to rape? So the rape is recognized as a mass rape. One, two, three, four, who decides? And why we still, in the 21st century, do not take mass rape of women, men, and children as a crime on its own. You know, people don't talk about rape. Rape is like given, you know, which is not supposed to be the case. Right. You know, it happens everywhere and we need to recognize it. You know, and again, rape is rape and it's a war crime. And you can't decide, you being a judge or a lawyer, how many people are raped, to, su successfully should be raped, then it is finally gets the ears of the international lawyers. Correct? The yeah. same is with genocide. How many people need to be killed for the international court or the UN to recognize it's a genocide or mass killing or maybe it's ethnic cleansing? I do not care. And these people do not care how you call it. Right. You know, they suffer pain and that should be addressed. Well, um, thank you, Shahida. Um, uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And um, uh, we, we will. Um, uh, release it, um, you know, early next week, either uh, the, uh, the Tuesday or Monday. Yeah. All right. Okay. You yeah. You have a good day. I'm going to. Thanks a lot, Narni. Okay. okay. Bye. Bye. -bye.